want, you can listen to all of our podcasts on Relatable Judaism. It's on our website and it's also on Spotify and YouTube. And so if you ever miss a class by not coming to Taka Tuesday, which you should, just because it's better to meet people, not just to hear me speak, right? That's the last thing you want to just come for. So, um, you know, it's great if you come, but if you don't, you can also listen to some Torah whilst you're driving or you're on the way somewhere. Um, Judaism is very into um, learning, listening, talking. It's, it's part of our life. It's not just when you're in college uh, or when you're in school. It's for many, many years after till the last day that you live. We are always learning and growing. Um, that's also the point of the mitzvot. The mitzvot that we do is also about growing. Every single time I do a mitzvah, I'm meant to elevate myself and grow. God right, doesn't need anything I do, but I need what I do. And if I do something good, it's going to elevate me, not God, because he doesn't need it. And it's actually very, very relatable to what I want to talk about today. Hashem says in Judaism, okay, in Jewish tradition, there is a teaching, if only you leave God and do Torah, meaning stop with this whole stuff of, I need to only do Torah because of God. God says, if, just leave me and do, forget about me and do Torah because it's for you. I don't need it for me. It's for you. The whole point of Torah is to have a guidance of how to live life to be God-like. It's more important to be God-like than to be with God. How do I know that? We know that by Abraham. That was beautifully said this Shabbat um, by Michael. Right? We know that from Abraham. What did Abraham do? He was having a prophecy. He was meeting God. And he says, wait, 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 God, I'm sorry. I got to go. You know why? Because there's guests over there. They're coming. And I gotta do, I've got to be like you, God, then be with you. Because being with God is an experience, of course, that's what we have after we leave this world. But being like God is the ultimate level in Jewish teaching. It's not about being with God. It's about being like God. It's not about uh, being with Hashem. It's about being like Hashem. It's a very important idea. If only you leave me, God says, and do my Torah, do my teachings. Anyway, I want to tell you that um, a few years ago we ran a trip. And it was a really good trip in New York, and it was an internship. So we, we set people up with some of the best jobs in different hedge funds, uh, really, really good, good jobs. There's no way uh, that you won't succeed by going on these, uh, on these internships. We're trying to get them again for those that would be interested. It was more geared towards students when we were in Oregon. Um, but in general, we did run this uh, trip once once in a while, and one time we actually went on the trip. Normally we just uh, show that it's available, if anyone wants, to get some of the best internships, whether you're in medicine or in business or whatever, some really good internships. So uh, we did this trip. It's, it's, it's really about six, six weeks, seven weeks, and uh, people get an amazing uh, opportunity, and there's also Jewish growth, of course. I mean, what am I just going to give you free internships without some Jewish teaching? So uh, there's some Jewish growth, of course. And at the end of it, one guy stood up and he says to the crowd, he says to everyone, listen, uh, I just want to tell you something. When 
I told my dad that I'm joining this trip with a bunch of rabbis. Um, uh, the idea was given to me by some campus rabbi, and I was already skeptical because he was wearing something on his head called a kippah. I'll be, I won't be afraid of there's any other type of hat on his head, but the kippah, no, right? So he was wearing a kippah, and uh, I was a bit uncomfortable to join his trip because, you know, maybe there's an agenda. And uh, I decided the internship is so great. That's exactly what we do. The internship is so great, so I'm going to come. And he went on the trip, and he's, this is at the end of the trip he's talking. And he says, when I told my dad that I'm going on this trip, he says, what, what, what trip? Which rabbi? And then, and then he said, uh, I just want to tell you that the minute that I told my dad it's a religious rabbi, a rabbi that's committed to Judaism fully with Shabbat and everything and mitzvot. So he's very, he's very committed. Uh, he says to me, but that's a cult. That's what he said to the group at the end of the trip. He told me, that's a cult. Don't go on that trip. You're going with a cult. And he says, at the end of the trip, I realized that there was no, nothing about it was a cult. Every single thing that I learned on this trip was about why we do what we do. Nothing was about pushing me to do what we do. And it was literally like that. That's one of our policy that me and Shira really stand for is we want to give off the picture of what we do, but never say that that's what you have to do. It's just an image of what we do. This is how we have a family. This is how we do Shabbat. This is how we do it with our phones and TV, and, and we take it very seriously. But never is it an image of you need to do what I do, and or I hope, at least I hope, it's not an image of you're wrong and I'm right. That's not at all what we're trying to do. In fact, it's all about, I'm much more about teaching why we do what we do than saying you have to do what we do, right? I'm much more about teaching why. Why is it that we, we don't use our phone? Why is it that we don't mix milk and meat together, right? There's a lot of things that we don't know why. So he said at the end of the trip, I realized that it's not a cult. In fact, I'm learning the reasons why. And then he blew my mind. He says, until now, I was never allowed to learn the reasons why. Because I was always told that it's a culture. Judaism, I'm, I'm more, we're, we're more of a cultural Judaism than a Judaism, which has uh, what, what we call religion, which I don't call us a religion. But, right, because the Torah doesn't call us a religion. You know that, yeah? Not once in, in the Torah are we called a religion. We're not, we're not a religion. We're a relationship. That's why you can be Jewish and not religious at all. It's, it's a unique... You can come out of Yom Kippur. You can have Jews coming out of a, a, a Yom Kippur and you ask most of them, so why did you do this? Yeah, I'm fasting. Why? My parents did it. Uh, one guy is coming out because he says, I, I spent a full day really internalizing and I was thinking about all the things I did wrong this year and I fixed myself. The other guy says, you ask him, wait, you did Yom Kippur, but do you believe in God? No. So why are you doing this? I don't know, right? It's a unique thing by Jews. You can never, you, it would be very hard to see on, uh, a, a, on the very important day for Christianity, let's say, 
uh, everyone's leaving the church and you're asking them, well, why are you leaving? Someone's saying, because uh, I don't believe in God, but it's just because this is what I do. And by Judaism, you have all types because it's not really a religion. It's also in ethnicity. It's also a relationship. There's many aspects of it. It's a family. It's a mishpacha, b'nei Yisrael. We're the sons of Israel. We're a family. So there are many things that Judaism is. Definitely, it's not just a culture. When people say, I'm only culturally Jewish, I tell them normally that that's one aspect. I'm also culturally Jewish. But then I'm also intellectually Jewish. I love the Talmud's wisdom. I'm also into agriculturally Jewish. The Talmud's full of wisdom in agriculture. I'm also into medicine. Judaism's all into medicine. I'm also into science because that teaches me about how God works in this world. So, and if you learn, if you learn the Torah and you learn a lot of the Talmud, there is a lot of scientific study in the Talmud. It's very interesting. There is. You wouldn't believe it. Maimonides has books on medicine. So I'm not just a cultural Jew. I have many things besides for being a cultural Jew. Cultural Jew is one aspect. But, um, you know, there's, there's a whole list. There's like a pizza pie. So don't just take one part of the slice. You know, you've got to try the, you've got to try the onion p- slice. You've got to try the, the, you know, we make sure that we get all, all toppings, all mixed. Uh, someone likes onions. I only like olives. I only like, we get each one with a different thing. So uh, there's lots of different parts to the pizza pie. But we're all part of this pizza pie. And um, one thing is for sure that if I say I'm culturally Jewish, this is very interesting. A lot of times I'm avoiding myself from knowing why I do things. I don't know why. Actually, I avoid myself from knowing why because it's only a culture. If I want to know the deep reasons of why, then that means I'm going to start committing to it. No, that's against cultural Judaism. So it's interesting how cultural Judaism says it's completely void of following a system, but yet it follows a system because it doesn't do it based on intellectual. It does it only because I want to do it because that's the way I was born. I avoid actually intellectually connecting to the things I do. So um, there are times where I only understand it, then I'll do it. If I don't understand it, I won't do it. But maybe there's something I'm missing by not understanding what I'm missing. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Or am I talking to myself? Or, uh, okay, you get what I'm saying? It's important to be culturally Jewish. The culture is beautiful. But let me ask you, if I tell my spouse that I'm going to be in a relationship with you, because Judaism is a relationship, on condition I feel good with you. If I feel good today, I'll talk to you. If my mood isn't so good, if I'm not in the mood of being in a relationship with you, then I won't talk to you. Is that good for a relationship? A relationship, if you build a relationship and you're committed to a relationship, you do it no matter what. Under all circumstances, my love, I am with you. From beginning to end, I am there for you. Whether you're hungry, whether I'm hungry, whether you're tired or I'm tired, I'm going to be there with you. It's unconditional. And what kind of image will I give off my children if I teach that Judaism is unconditional for me? Or if I say it's only conditional to it feeling good for me. What's better? If I say that it's unconditional, if I say it's... Which one is my child going to actually stick to? If he sees that I'm really strong with my Judaism no matter what, or 
If I only do Judaism, not that I throw it, by the way, Chinuch, education, there's a book that was written 800 years ago called Sefer Chinuch. Maybe a bit less. But it's called Sefer Chinuch, the Times of Maimonides. A very important book. It's called The Book of Education. What is it? One thing. It explains why we do the things that we do. It goes through every mitzvah. It's well worth studying. But you'd need someone to teach it because it's deep. Right? Not because you're incapable of understanding, but even, you know, even my, my brother, my, my family, it's not the language, is, is a language which you can't just sit down in bed and read. You need to really study it. You need a, a study partner to study it. But either way, it's called a book of education. Sefer Achinuch. What's Chinuch? What's education? That you tell your child what to do because you do it? Or you tell your child what to do? What's, what's education? Do you know what education is? What do you think is a good educator? Leading by example. That's it. Boom. Right? A good edu- that's, why you're, that's why you're one of the... <laughs> you're on the board. Right? Being, be, leading by example. That's it. I, I try as much as I can to not tell my child what to do. Obviously... If he's putting his hands in the electrical uh, outlet, I'm going to tell him off, right? I'm not going to be an idiot and say, yes, enjoy the outlet, (laughs) right? I'm going to obviously tell him off. You've got to have restrictions. It says, it says, Solomon said, somebody holds back the stick. Doesn't literally mean a stick, right? No, right? But you hold back the stick. You really hate your child. Why? Not because the stick, by the way, means restriction. Gevura. The staff meant restriction, like with Moses. Every time he used the staff, it was used to cause a sense of restriction. And, right? Was, a stick represents restriction, like the carrot and the stick is the, the way that we speak. So if somebody doesn't have any restrictions in his home, he doesn't like his child. He actually hates his child. You know why? Yes, eat what you want. Candy, yeah. Sugar, yeah. Run in the street, yeah. Whatever you want, right? That's not good education. Good education is that you have a certain element of restriction. But where does the restriction start? Within yourself. I'll never forget. I walk into someone's house. His, his kids are on the TV. And he's like, there's a rabbi here. There's a rabbi here. Turn off the TV. I didn't say anything. Turn off the TV. Go play. So they go play. Then uh, we were talking, me and Shira were there. We were talking to his wife and he sits down on the couch and he turns on the TV for the news. And he's like, Rafa, you got to see this. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, a minute ago, you just told you, I didn't say anything, of course, but a minute ago, you just told me, uh, you just told your kids to run off because TV's bad. And then you turn on the TV. What's going on? It, not for me, but what are the children thinking? It's not enough People will never stick to what you say. They will stick to what you do. If they see that you are committed to something, then they will, lead, they will follow. It says, If it comes out your heart, it goes into the other person's heart. An educator who teaches well, teaches from his heart. What does it mean to teach from your heart? You live by the teachings. Not that you just do it every day because you, know, you, you have to for the income. Because it's a job. But this is something I believe in. 
If it comes out of your heart, it will go into the child's heart. It could be the most terrible speech. It could be the worst speaker. But if it's coming from the heart, worst language, we can't speak English properly. But if it's coming from the teacher's heart, the child will feel it. Enjoy the class. Enjoy the, the, the conversation. Because it needs to come from a real place. The same is with the way you educate. It's not that you don't tell your child ever what to do. But you've got to live before you actually tell your child what to do. So that's how it is also with Judaism. If I say I'm culturally Jewish, then why should I tell my child, hey, son, you could do whatever you want, my son. But one thing you have to do, marry a Jewish girl or marry a Jewish boy. Are the chances strong that my child will marry a Jewish boy or girl? No, thank you. We agree. So is, it, is there a chance that my child would? No. It, I'm, I'm in what, just because I'm culturally Jewish, because you're born this way, I'm going to guilt trip you into only marrying a Jewish girl or boy. That's it. That's the only reason. There's a beautiful, there's a lot more girls that are not, and guys that are not Jewish out there. And they're easier to get hold of. That's what they tell me. Right? So they, so, so that's what they say. So there's a lot more. So, so you're going to go and you're going to say, no, I'm not going to marry a uh, non-Jewish girl. Why? Because my parents and my grandparents always told me, you have to make sure one thing, do whatever you want, but you have to make sure that you're going to marry a Jewish child, a Jewish uh, child, a Jewish wife or husband, right? Sorry. I've been busy with my children for a long time. So that's the only words that ring in my head, child, 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 child. Um, but you hear what I'm saying? Why should I? There's actually no difference between me and a non-Jewish guy or girl. I think it's racist. If I'm no different, then why are you pushing me to not... Obviously, that's wrong, right? You can tell. I don't believe that. But the truth is, if I'm not much different, then why are you telling me that we should marry into Jewish... There's no reason. Do you get what I'm saying? Why, why should I? Because you're guilt-tripping me? 3,000 years of generations after generations and you're going to break the chain. You're going to break the chain. But that's just going to make me feel even worse. And the truth is, it's sad. But can you expect any better? If the child doesn't have anything else besides for a bit of gefilte fish and, uh, or it's a fadic fish or, or um, Moroccan fish or whatever it is or um, Gandhi, and whatever food it is, right? If that's all you have is your culture, then why should I stick to my culture? Why, why would I? Could someone tell me why would I stick to my culture if that's all be just because I'm born into it? Look, if I was dating and you would ask me, if I was dating and you'd come to me and ask me, hey, I have this... Uh, I have this girl for you. She's amazing. But uh, the only thing is, she's uh, heavily into the Christian faith. Her name's Christina. Would you want to go out? Would you, would you want to go out with her? She's really special. She's very, very spiritual. Very religious. Way more religious than any of the, all the Jewish girls, right? You, you're going to do well. Would, I, would you offer such a thing for me? No. Why? How Jewish do I look? How Jewish am I? Right? I'm very committed. 
I do Shabbat. I, uh, first thing I'll ask is, you know, does, very nice, but does she even do Shabbat? Does she know what I do? Right? It's worlds apart. It, you will never suggest for, to somebody who's committed to Judaism, somebody who's not Jewish. Why? Because his values are in a different place. So the question isn't, should you marry a Jewish person or not? The question is, what values do you have or not? Or do you have strong Jewish values? Then you'll look for someone who's similar to your values. And it happens to be that the person that's going to be similar to your values is going to be a Jewish person because they also are doing similar things to you. If not, then why would I? Guilt me into it? Now you tell me. I was never once told, never, by my parents, I hope you're going to marry a Jewish girl. Never. And none of my friends either. Do you know why? Because I grew up in a family and in a, in, a, in, a, in a home that's very committed to Judaism. So me, it's different. There's many rabbis, by the way, that weren't. Okay? And now I've just made myself completely unrelatable to everyone that's here. Forget it, right? But still, I, I'm just trying to point out this idea. I grew up in an environment that never, ever asked me, I hope you marry a Jewish girl. You know why I'm saying this? Because not long ago, someone's knocking on my door, crying. And he said, I'm a Kohen, I'm a, a priest from the priestly family. We have one son. We have generations and generations of children that are, that are from the Kohanim. Go all the way back to Aharon. How can we break this? And he's crying with tears. Please, Rabbi, do something for me. And please don't tell anybody that I came here. These are the words that he said to me. What do you think I'm going to do? Do you think I'm a policeman? I'm going to go running after him and say, hey, right? I'm going to cuff you up and tie you and say, don't marry, don't marry her. He's going out with this girl. He's, he's 30 years old. What do you think? What, who do you think I am? Between me and you, what do you think I'm going to do? I'll try, I could try, but what, what do you think I can do? I'm a policeman. I'm going to tell him not to do what he's doing. He's old enough to make his own choices. I can't change. That's what I'm saying. We never change anybody. We just give the reasons to why things are the things that we do. And then you say to you, choose for yourself whether you like them or not. But I never force anybody. No one's forcing anyone. I can't. Who do you, what do you think we are? I love it. How they, people think, oh, you're going to, you're going to a rabbi's house. He's going, to, he's going to force you. What's he going to force you? What's he going to do? What am I going to do? Tell me, how can I force anyone? We're just going to spread love. That's all. So just because I'm culturally Jewish is not enough of a reason that I'm going to stay Jewish and I'm going to have children that are Jewish and grandchildren. And the conversation that a parent has is already a sign of where your Judaism is holding. If, you, if the conversation is, I just hope you marry someone Jewish, it'll be nice, then I already know where your Judaism is holding, where your values are. It was never a conversation in my home. What is this to do with this week? And I want to continue also talking about mental health, which is something that I've been speaking about because this has been a tough year. This past year and a half has been not easy for everybody. And the last thing, or the, big, the biggest problem, isn't all the problems that we think it is. Politics, fighting, we think that's all the problem. We've, we're hitting the wrong thing. It's like, it's like chasing after the stick. It says that the dog, which is kulolev, kelev in Hebrew, kulolev, it's all heart for its owner. Each animal has a different 
Mida, a different personality that we can learn from. The cat is Khatul because it's, it looks after itself, right? You don't have to train it. The cat, you don't have to train. So there's an element of modesty that we learn from the cat. A dog, we learn an element of ro- loyalty. Uh, every animal teaches us something else. Every animal. The, um, I forgot where I am. I'm on my tantrums and I forgot where I'm going. What was I talking about? The dog, the animals, and the... Mental health. Mental health. So mental health. <laughs> mental health is extremely, extremely important. We've spent an entire year, literally a year and a half on our own, locked up in the middle of nowhere. I don't know how anyone does it because I was going mad with my kids and with my family and I've been busy, right? But I'm still going mad because I need this. This is what makes me happy. Sitting on a Zoom call, it's just like, right? So I'm also going mad. Everyone's gone mad. But if we think, oh, this is what I was saying. If we think that... The problem is all the problems that we're seeing, right? Everyone's saying there's a problem. We're so divided. It's this, that. It's the politics. What's the problem? What's the core of the problem? The core of the problem is our values. What values do we have? That's really, if you want to get to the bottom of it, what values do I have? If I have good values, why would I be bothered? Why will I have hatred? Why will I have problems with other people? If I have the right values, like the sense of taking responsibility, all the values that Judaism teaches me, Shabbat, tzedakah, charity, being involved with giving to something, once, once, a, once in a while, be involved with giving. If I, get, if, I, if I elevate myself, if the whole environment elevated themselves, had more values, we wouldn't have mental health issues. But what can we do if most of our time is spent binging, on things that are against mental health. Most of our time. All day. Most 24 hours, 24 hours, 23 hours of the day. Right? After I finish at TikTok till 6 in the morning. Binging. I have one hour sleep. The rest of the day is looking at what I don't have. What I don't have. How much food I still need. Everything. It's what food is better to make. There's a great ad on Facebook about these one minute videos of how to make a better meal. Right, and a better this, and a better always. There's always something that I don't have, and something else that I need. And if that's all my life, and then when I do speak, I speak lashonara gossip, and when I eat, I don't eat healthy food, and I don't eat kosher, right, which has an impact on me. And I, most of my day isn't positive. Then how can I even start thinking about mental health? You hear what I'm saying? Do you do you have a question? You want to say something? You good? Okay. See, that, that's, that's a... You don't mind. This guy he does yoga. He's healthy. See, that's good. So, um, I said you don't mind before I asked you. You don't mind. Okay. Right. It's, he did it once for Aishlet. We should do another yoga. We should do it. We should do it. So, um, thank you. So, uh, uh, where was I? So, health. Mental health. I want to tie into this week. Torah portion. Okay? In this week, in Judaism... Oh, it's hot, too. Okay, back on. We're back on the game. It's recording? It says recording? Yeah, it's good. Okay. So, uh, we're back on the game. You guys need a drink, some more food. Please, if there's any left, please feel at home. If there's any left. 
Um, where was I? So, here. Very important thing. This week we learn about a chok. Okay? You could say that. Oh, yeah, good. Very Israeli. Chok. A chok is a statute. Something that doesn't change. In Judaism, we have two types of mitzvot. They are called either mishpatim or chok. A mishpat is something that we understand. It makes sense. It's logical. At least we think we understand it. Right? Like uh, giving charity. It's a logical thing. You, when you elevate somebody else, you're also elevating yourself. It's important to care. It's a logical mitzvah. Anyone else think of a logical mitzvah? What one? Don't, don't murder, right? Lot it is, is don't murder. You, you know why there's a difference? Because there's times that you can kill if someone's coming to kill you, right? Someone's coming to kill you. you can, you're allowed to, according to Jewish law, kill him first. How? I don't know. So but that's, your, that's your decision. But if someone's coming to kill you, don't be foolish and say, kill me. And you should jump up and kill him first. Okay? Uh, yes, by the way, that's what happened even during uh, Germany. There were many Jews that jumped up and fought. It was, it was very systematic. They did it in a way which didn't allow us to... It wasn't like the Jews just said, uh, we'll let them do whatever they want. They fooled us into a very terrible... Uh, system, but that's another discussion. Um, there are some things which are logical: don't murder, don't steal. Right? There are many, many mitzvot that we have which are logical. There are mitzvot that are not logical, like yes, you can't. Uh, you might say some of it's logical, right? There's a mitzvah of tzabalechayim, not causing pain to the animal. But there is a law, if you want to take the egg of the bird, you have to do shiluah hakan, sending the bird away. That's what you meant, right? <coughs> you have to do what we call shiluah hakan, where you send the bird away. And then, only then, you can you take the, the egg. Okay, that also somewhat makes sense. But still, uh, you can't take the egg of the, of the bird in front of the bird. Shoot it away. You might say that's logical, but it's actually beyond logic. Right? Anything else which makes no sense at all? Putting on to fill in. Wrapping leather around your arm. Why black? Why leather? Why, why on the arm? Why on the head? What's written in it? Yeah. It is. It's, we say it in Shema. Every day we say in Shema, You should tie them on your arm and put them in between your eyes. There's the how to do it, exactly what we do, is not written in the Torah, but it's written. It's a mitzvah in the Torah. Milk and meat. Cloth and linen. Milk and meat makes no sense. Zero at all. Why? Okay. Good? Okay. So, milk, milk and meat makes zero sense, right? At all. Because, okay, kosher, non-kosher, fine. That, that could be that it makes sense. But milk and meat, those are both kosher products. You've got milk, which is kosher. Meat, which is kosher. And the Torah says, don't even cook it together. That doesn't make sense. There are many things that we do that don't make sense. There's one that really doesn't make sense more than anything else. And it's called the red heifer. Have you heard of the red heifer? Apparently there's a South Park or, yeah. a, or something on it. 
the reason why I know that is because once I was talking about this and all of a sudden everyone was dancing and laughing and laughing. I'm like, why are you laughing? What's so funny? And then they, they knew all about the red heifer. I'm like, what? So they told me, yeah, it's a South Park. <laughs> uh, no, I've never watched it. But I've heard about it. The next Tuckage, is it? The red heifer is one of the most interesting Jewish laws that we have. And actually, if you learn about it, it makes a lot of sense. The reason why we do it is tremendous. I could explain to you what, how it works, but it's tremendous. There's many, many reasons behind it. Yet, even though there are many reasons that were written about it, one of the mitzvot that we have called the red heifer, the red cow that we have to look for, uh, even though it can be explained, Shlomo HaMelech Solomon said, Amalti Achakmena, I said, I will try and understand I will try and understand it, but it's beyond me. No Jew is able to fully understand the idea of the red heifer. Should I tell you about the red heifer? Okay, so the red heifer is, is called the para aduma in Hebrew, the red cow. And there was a law in Judaism back in the day, not today, because we don't have a temple. But whenever someone was in uh, touch with the dead, they would come impure. Whenever someone was in touch with the dead, they come impure. And they had to go to a mikvah and, uh, and also be sprinkled by the ashes of the red heifer. Right. Are you still into Judaism now? And they had to be sprinkled with the ashes of the red heifer. This was during the times of the temple. Now, the red heifer was a very special unique animal it was a red cow that had to never have even if it has two hairs which is not red not kosher it has to be completely purely red from begin not one hair which is not red okay and the second rule is it has to be that it never worked never ever worked or carried a yoke it never carried anything can you imagine once in a blue moon blue moon but once in a blue moon, it's a good beer. It's a really good beer. Right? But once in a blue moon, there is, there is a red cow. Maybe it's once in a red cow. What? Once in a gold star. A gold star. What? Once in a gold star, there was a red cow. Once in a many years. It was very hard to find. Very hard to find this thing. Never worked. Completely red. It's extremely hard to find. And when they did find it, the Jewish people for the temple would pay whatever money it costs, millions of dollars for this red cow. There's actually a story in the Talmud of a, of a non-Jew called Dama Ben Natina. Eitan, you remember the story? I told you the story, but I'll say it again. There's a story of a non-Jew called Dama Ben Natina who lived during the time of the temple. And uh, he was a, it was a good guy. He was a good non-Jew, okay? And he... Uh, Basically, he had a few things. One year, let me tell you how great he was. One year, he had a stone, a special sapphire stone that's very, very hard to get hold of. And this sapphire stone was used for the holy priest on the breastplate of the holy priest. He had to have special 12 different stones. These stones would shine up and it would speak to the Jewish people. That's how they would communicate with God. It was, it was an amazing thing. There was many miracles that happened in the temple. Not just with one person, right? 
not just a miracle with one person. Jews had over a million prophets, not just one prophet. We had throughout our history many, many stories like this. So the, the stone, the sapphire stone, they heard that's in the, I think it's the north of Israel, far out. There was a guy called Dama Benatina, his father's a farmer, and they have found a special stone, exactly the sapphire stone. So they came, the rabbis traveled, traveled. In those days, it's not easy to get to the north. They traveled all the way, and they managed to knock on his door. They said, please, can we have the stone? We need, we need to buy it off you. He says to them, listen, I know that you'll take whatever money you want for it, but I don't know what to do. The stone is under my father's pillow and he's asleep right now. I can't give it to you. So uh, the rabbis said, you know, are you sure? Millions of dollars. My father's asleep. I'm never going to wake him up. I respect my dad. The rabbis left. They didn't buy the stone from him and they got another stone from somewhere else. The next year, the Talmud says, God blessed this Dama Benatina with a red heifer. The year before, because of his kibud av, because of the honor that he had for his parents, that he wouldn't wake him, his father up for, a, his father would have woken up and told him, hey, what are you doing? I would have sold this stone. No, I don't want to cause my father any pain. The next year, God gave him a red heifer. They hear that he's got a red heifer. They come back to him the next year and they said to him, you have the red heifer? Oh, you're going to get not just millions, billions. We've been waiting for years for this red heifer. You have a red heifer? He says, yes, I do. And I he says like this, I can ask from you, I know that I can ask from you whatever money you want for this red heifer, for this red cow. But I only ask for you to give me the same amount of money that you would have given me last year for the coin that I lost for the stone that I lost because my father was asleep. And that's exactly what happened. They gave him the money of the value of the stone, which was far, far less than the value of the red heifer. And the Talmud says, there's, there's a lot of things we learn from this. First is that Judaism, look how beautiful the Talmud is. Judaism is not strictly Jewish. We want the world to be better, not just Jews. And we, we will bring stories of non-Jews it says in the Gemara and the Talmud and Sanhedrin that we need to learn from not just the Jews, from the non-Jews also. And for this reason, Maimonides writes in his books that he's, not everything he writes is from a lot of the things he's teaching is from the psychologists, the, the philosophers of his generation, he, the, the medicine, medicals of his generation, medicine of his generation. It can all be derived in the Torah. The Torah is the blueprint of the universe. But he still learned from the wisdom. The Talmud in Sanhedrin says that you should learn from the non-Jews in their good ways also. If there's someone who's not Jewish and is doing good things, you're meant to learn from it. There's times when you're not meant to learn from them. Like, for instance, like their view of our Torah. Don't learn from them. If they have skewed views of our Torah, then don't learn from them. We have history that goes back for each generation that will tell you that our history and our Judaism is very deep and complex. It's not just like a nice thing to do. But look at this story. The Talmud's bringing a non-Jew to teach me. From there, you can also learn. Dama Benatina. 
And we learn that him who wasn't commanded the Ten Commandments to honor your father and your mother. And yet he gave up the world to look at, to give, to sell his, the coin, the, the expensive stone, so that he won't wake up his father. What a special person. And then the next year he said, give me the same price. What an honest person. Right? He said, give me the same price as you would have given me for the stone. But the red heifer, the rabbis would pay anything for it. And what would they do? they take it and they'd slaughter it by the temple. Well, anyone, you eat meat? We still eat meat to today. So if you say that it's what are you doing? Well, we, we eat meat as well. So what are you doing? Eating meat? Right? For the people that have questions about how we can slaughter animals, that's another discussion why Judaism is not vegan. Adam, at the beginning of creation, we were all vegans, actually. Only after the sin were we allowed to eat meat. Okay, so if anyone's got questions ethically about how we can eat meat, there's another whole class that I do need to work on to pr- perfect it and give it over at some point on why we are not vegans. It's very, it's very profound. But anyway, um, the red heifer, we'd get and we'd pay billions, tremendous amount of money for the red heifer, for the temple, which was loved by all the world, not just the Jews. Everyone loved the temple. We would pay millions for this red heifer. And what would we do? We'd slaughter it, burn it, and use the blood to sprinkle it on the, on the, on the ohel moed, on the on the curtain of the of the temple, in the holy place of the temple. And we take the red heifer, and we, we and then we'd burn it completely to Hashem. We take the most expensive thing and burn it for Hashem. And what would we do with it afterwards? The ashes, right? We cremate it, even though. For humans, we don't do that. But we'd burn it for the animal. And we'd use the ashes every time someone came into contamination with the dead. Every time someone came into contact with the dead, we'd use it. Or Chaim, very interesting. The great rabbi explains, who's actually a lineage family of ours, Rabbi Chaim ben Atar, who was a big, big Sephardic rabbi, who lived for some time in Morocco, uh, very holy rabbi. Just one second. The Orachayim Kadosh says that when it's interesting how in this world, if you have garbage, right? You have garbage, flies come to it because flies are attracted to garbage. If you empty out the garbage from the, you empty out the trash, flies will come, but not that many because there's not much trash there. He wants trash, right? Flies want trash. But if you take, not garbage, if you take honey, a bucket filled with honey, and you empty it out, oh, the little bit of honey that's around it, oh, all the flies will come running. A, a, even though flies want garbage, but when you have a bucket filled with honey and you empty it out, and there's, there's a bit of honey on the, on the, around the garbage trash, thousands of flies are going to come. Why? He says, a place where there was a lot of good and you've, you remove it, that's much more attractive in terms of it, it, it will have much more attraction to dirt. What does that mean? Like the human body. There are four elements in the world. Right? We have uh, dust, wind, fire, and water. There's also four different types of living beings. There's four different types of beings in the world. There's four corners. There's four corners. 
and the four corners of the tzitzit, right? There's many things, the four letters of God's name. So the, there are four, um, what was I saying? The four uh, types, there's a table, right? There's a stone, domem it's called, things that don't move, they don't change, they're still objects, that's one. Then there's tzomeach, things that flower from the ground. You put a seed in the ground, it comes a tree, right? That's different than humans and animals, right? It's a flower. It needs the earth in order to live and grow. It needs the sun, it needs the earth. It's different than a stone. True? A stone never changes. It stays the way it was, always. It does eventually erode. And according to Jewish teaching, even in a stone, there's tremendous energy. Today, we understand that because whenever you look at everything, there's energy behind everything. Atoms and electrons and neutrons, there's energy behind everything. But Judaism always says that even a domem, a still object, like a stone, has tremendous power force, behind life force behind it. You might not see it. But Albert Einstein saw it and blew up the whole, uh, you know, can blow up half the world because of it. So even still objects have life force in it. But a tree has much more life force in it. it keeps growing. It's true. Then you have something called a behemah. A behemah is an animal. An animal is much more life force. It doesn't rely on the earth. It has its own life force. Interesting. It, it uses the earth to live and get its energy, but it's its own life force. It has much more of a mind on its own, right? It's more aware. Even though trees are also aware. The Tal- that's the, it's hidden, but trees are also aware. The Talmud says, you know, first of all, the, the reason why we have 20% oxygen always, you cut, sometimes a forest gets cut down. Oh, how do we remain with the same amount of oxygen? You know, trees give off oxygen because they speak to each other. You know that. When one tree, this is a scientific fact, when one tree is cut down, the trees nearby will release more oxygen to fulfill the void of the tree that's... The trees are fasting. We're not allowed to just cut down trees, according to Judaism, especially fruit trees that are going to give us more seeds and more fruits afterwards. But for no reason to cut trees down. If it's bothering us and it's avoiding us from living, then you can. And always it's nice to... put a tree somewhere else but we're not allowed to. it says that when you cut down a tree its voice can be heard from one side of the world to the other we don't hear it just like we don't hear radio waves that are passing right there's no wire from here to i'm very happy with my new microphone there's no wire from here to the thing but where they are the sound is passing right there's a lot that happens in the world that we don't see there's radio waves that we don't see there's a lot that we don't see so the um where was i the animal, right? The animal is uh, the third thing because it's more than a flower or a tree. And then finally you have a human being. Why is he different? Because he's called a ruach memalala. He's a speaking be- animal. Even though animals do communicate with each other, their form of communication, according to Jewish teaching, is mostly of instinct. Whilst with humans, we can write poems, we can sing songs. It's amazing. We can put words together and ideas together. Take ourselves from earth to moon. Right? Humans could take themselves to the moon. It's, it's incredible. Take ourselves out of this planet. Question who brought us in this planet. Question what's beyond us. No one does that besides for humans. Right? Who, where did I come from? 
Why was it that when I was created, I was one of millions of seeds and then I was the one that made it? What, and who was behind, what's behind the whole thing? And I was a zygote and look where I am now and where I'm going. Right? If you think about the big picture, humans do that. So we are called a madaba, another high level of what we call a spiritual force behind the physical force. So there's four and they're related to the four elements. But there are four types of beings in this world. And one of them is a human being. The human being is called a Madaba speaker because we have the power to communicate as well as just living in this world. We have the power to question our existence. We don't just be. We even question our existence, where we come from. It's unique. So when a person dies, it's very interesting. When a, tr when a stone is cut off from, I'll ask you, when a stone is cut off from a huge rock, from its source, it was originally on a mountain, you cut off a stone from a massive rock on a mountain, does the stone die? No. It just takes its energy with it. It takes the energy with it. It will erode maybe a bit quicker, but it's a stone. The stone will live the same way if you cut it from its source than the way it was. True? The next is an animal. The next is a flower. You take a flower and you cut it off, will it live? No. Will it start rotting? Yes. Now, there are some things that flower that can last for years, like wood. Wood comes from a tree. And when you cut it off, it still remains in the form of a domain, but it won't last as long as stone. Stone will last much longer than wood. Even if it's good, solid wood, stone will last longer. So, you see that something that flowers, that has more of a life force in it, the minute you take it away from its life force, the void is greater and then it rots quicker. Interesting. What about a corpse of an animal? Have you ever smelt a corpse of a dead animal after a week or two? Terrible. You've never? Yeah. Well, even when we see it, even when we see it, driving on the street and you see like a little squirrel dead or something. I saw that today. It's on my mind. It's still on my mind. Right? But it's like, ugh. A human body is even more because it's on a higher level spiritually. When it dies, you should know or maybe you shouldn't know, but the human body is absolutely terrible. The smell is terrible. July 4th is coming. The smell is absolutely terrible because the void of life of a human being is much more. You see? Now, we are very connected to life. And we are very connected to our family and our relatives. And when someone passes away, we could start... If they, weren't, if they wouldn't rot and they wouldn't smell bad, we wouldn't put them, we wouldn't put them in the ground. We'd, this is my family. So I'd stick to them. I'd be close to them. I'll never let them go. And God wants us to be in this world, to live in this world. The minute that there's a spiritual force removed from it, the physical has no use. It's lacking. Of, it's got a tremendous void and it rots even more. This is what we're taught in spiritual teaching. And for this reason, when we connect to the dead, right, we need to be reminded that that's where we're all going. That's where we're all going. And when we take the red heifer, which we pay millions for, millions of dollars for, what do we do with it at the end? We use the blood 
for the prayer. But the the body comes ashes and it goes back to the dust. And what does that tell me? That all our energy is what matters. In this world, what matters to you most is what you do. Because at the end of the day, this body of ours goes back to the ground. All the money that we invested in fight for two days because the Gucci bag that I wanted wasn't the right order and I want a better order, right? So, right? so whatever it is, we fight for a lot of times about rubbish. In English, we'd say rubbish. We fight about rubbish. What do we fight about? A lot of times it's, it's fleeting things, physical things, but we forget. And then we face death. Right? It's a void. And when there's a void of the spiritual, we realize, wait a second, the physical is, is even more empty than it was because it's lacking that spirituality in it. And what do we need to do? We take the red heifer, the thing that we paid millions for, and we burn it for ashes to remind us that the physical is where we're going to go as well. Whenever we're in contact with the dead, we're reminded of that. We sprinkle ourselves with the ashes. We'd go to the mikvah, which is like a rebirth, like the way that the world was originally. It's a form of rebirth. That's how it is at birth. It has to be a certain measurement called 40 sa'ah, the same as the, the, the world. And, um, and we have to go through a rebirth kind of experience and also remember that... Living in this world is about action. And the physical is eventually going to leave us. Don't get too connected. And that's the aspect of the red heifer. Now, does it make sense to me? Is there logic behind it? Of course, there's, there's a lot of logic behind it. There's a lot of wisdom behind it. Yet it's still something that's called illogical. And we do it. Because in Judaism, if I don't commit to something, if I only commit to something that makes sense to me, then eventually I'll leave it. I have to commit to something, whether it makes sense to me or whether it doesn't. Do you know why? Because God, because I, I verify and I know that God wants me to do it. That's the reason why I do it. Because there's really, it's not that I don't murder because it's a good thing not to murder. I don't murder because God commanded it for me. It makes it a whole new level. That means that I'm unconditional with my relationship to the mitzvot that I do. There's someone that has questions here. Omri. Yeah, so you say that you sprinkle the ashes of the red heifer, but we only have one red heifer, right? Uh, we, we'd recycle the ashes many times, but we'd, we'd use a tiny bit each time. It wasn't like we'd have, we have a stock, and then we'd sprinkle a tiny, tiny bit. It was enough, of course. It wasn't like we, we took the whole thing and like poured the buckets of ashes on no, the guy. I imagine, but I also imagine it would eventually run out. It did. It did, and we had to go and look for more. And whenever it was available, yeah. So there's more than one. There are, yeah. Every every generation, once in a while, even today, they found not long ago a red heifer, a red cow. Yeah, there's been a number of times where they found a, a red cow. Anyway, I did want to finish off. What's this to do with mental health? Okay, this is this is where it's really important. When I'm doing things that are unconditional. When I say to myself that no matter what, I'm doing this. If it makes sense to me, I'll do it. If it doesn't make I'm still going to do it. Not only if I feel good, I'll do it. What am I committed to consistently, even if it doesn't feel good for me? And if I'm going to do things which I'm consistent with, that is going to help me in terms of my mental health. One of the biggest challenges 
uh, of mental health is somebody who's not able to be committed to something. One day here, one day there, one day my job, the next day I want to quit, the next day I have it. The same with Judaism. There's chokim umishpatim. By the way, it says, zot, by the paraduma, the red heifer, it says, this is the chok, the unconditional law, the illogical law of the Torah, not of the red cow, of the whole Torah. Because really, the whole Torah is not logical. That's how we have to look at it. That I do it because it's the right thing to do, not because it's logical for me. I still try and understand it. The guy that came on that trip was right. Judaism, we still always want to try and understand why. But at the end of my, the day, in the back of my mind, I know that I'm a human being and the person that commanded it to me is God. And no matter what, I'm going to commit myself to these words because they are godly. And when I'm able to do that, then I'm going to actually, look, if I only do Shabbat because it's logical for me, it makes sense once in a while to lock down my phone, to turn off my phone and not do emails. Is it enough to make me commit to it? No, it's not enough. How do I commit to Shabbat? Because I know that it's, com- it's God. It's verifiable. It's true. By the way, to believe in God. What does that mean? I believe in God. Very interesting point. I'll finish off with this. What does it mean to believe in God? I have belief. In Hebrew, emunah. What does it mean to have emunah? Faith. That's what people say. Let me ask you a question. This is the first time Emunah is written in the Torah. You want to know the first time Emunah is written in the Torah? We'll finish off with this. The first time that Emunah is written in the Torah, faith is written in the Torah, this we, we think it's called, is with Abraham. Towards the end of his life, he's already almost 100 years old. And God promises him that you're going to have a child. And you're going to be a future to many generations. And then it says, God shows him, look, as much as there's there's stars and there's the world, that's how your children are going to be. He's 100 years old, right? The chance of having more kids after 100? A high or no? Yeah, Yeah, hopefully, amen. Right, if it was for me, there'll be lots of kids. But, uh, right, the chance of having a child after 100 years old is not so high. Yet it says that Abram, he had emunah ba'ashem. He had, at that point, he had emunah in God. What does that mean? That he, he realized that God exists or he always knew? He was speaking to God. He had prophecy. hundred years he was talking to God. So what does it mean he suddenly believed in God? What does that mean? He came convinced of the power. He, he came convinced that it's going to happen. Although I don't see that it's going to happen because it's insane. I'm a hundred. But Emuna is not that I question whether God exists or not. There's no such thing I question. God exists. It says we have to know that God exists. Not that we believe God exists. No such thing in Judaism. You know that God exists. But it takes not long to think about how the world works to realize that God exists. We were just in a class with Rabbi Zamir Cohen. Uh, Israeli rabbi, very holy rabbi. He came here to LA and he said something fascinating. He was talking about a, a butterfly. I was talking about this on Shabbat. There's a certain type of butterfly that's able to, when it's, when it's getting chased after by its uh, predator, it's able to open its wings and give off an image of an eagle. And 
the eagle, it's a small bird that chases this butterfly. It's a small bird. But the eagle eats that bird. I forgot what bird it is. A certain type of bird that eats the butterfly. The eagle is the, is the predator of this bird. This bird is a prey to an eagle. How on earth does a, a butterfly put on the back of its wings an image? You can look it up. How on earth does a butterfly put on the back of its wings an image of an eagle that knows the bird that normally chases after him and knows that the predator of that bird is an eagle? There's two stages ahead. That's insane. Insane. It's a caterpillar. Comes a butterfly, creates an image of an eagle when it flaps its wings. As soon as the bird comes to get it, it knows the image of the predator of the bird. We've not even, that's something special. We've not even begun. Think about the heart, the blood, the DNA. Everything that's happening in this world. So according to Judaism, it's not you question whether God, you know that God exists. But are you faithful to the teachings that this is going to work out? That's the idea. It's faithfulness. Not that I believe whether God exists or not. It's faithfulness. I know that this is the... It's not, things are not working out for me. But I know that in the long run, it's going to be fine. That's called emunah. I don't see the entire picture. Because I'm only living in this amount of time. I'm not God. If I was God, then I would see the entire picture. I only see part of the image. But emunah means... I believe that this is the right thing for me. I'm going to continue living positively because I really understand that Judaism teaches me that God only wants the good for me and I'm faithful to that teaching. Whether God exists, I know. That's chok. That's what it means to have a chok, a mitzvah, to take mitzvah. That I do it because God commanded it, not because it's logical for me. Oh, there's logic? Of course, God commanded it. And by the way, it says, and I'll finish with this. At the end of Deuteronomy, it says, Keep ushmaltem v'asitem. Guard them and do them. Do the logical and the illogical. Do both. Why? When the non-Jews come to you and they say, What is this religion, Judaism? They'll say, They are such wise people. 25% of Nobel Prizes. Such a small number of people. 14 million Jews, and yet they made 25% of Nobel Prizes? It's a laughing stock at the world. Right? What's going on here? The rest of the world is a, a quarter of all Nobel Prizes, and they don't like the Jews. They don't give it us. There's many more that they should have got one, right? But they just, you know, it's like too many Jews, you know. These, uh, we probably could have got more. I'm telling you. So 25%, there's something strange. When you look at the Jewish family, the family structure, in the religious community, it's around 7% divorce rate. Outside of the religious community, committed to the laws of, not because of religion, but committed to the laws that the Torah tells you to keep for marriage. There's two things that you have to do. Family purity and guarding your eyes. Right? Not just your eyes, but also physically not being with other people that's not in your relationship. These are commandments. When you take them as godly and seriously, at the time you might say, well, this is... It's hard. But when you look at the bigger picture, the world looks at us and they say, wait a second, what's their secret? And that's what the Torah promises. At Deuteronomy, Moses says, keep the mitzvot, do them, whether it's logical or not, because it's 
the wisdom and the understanding to all the nations of the world. When the nations of the world look at you, they say, what's their secret? Their kids are amazing. They're, they have beautiful relationships. They have amazing education. They make 25% of Nobel Prizes. Do you know how many times I walk around with a keeper? People are talking about anti-Semitism. Yeah, I've had anti-Semitism, fair share, much more in England, by the way. But do you know how many times I've had pro-Semitism? Do you know how many times people have gone, you're Jewish? I'm like, yeah. Like, what, gave it, what gave it away? And then they start talking. You, you guys are amazing. You, you guys are just, what you've done to the world. I keep reading about you. you you're, do, you I've, do you know how many times I've heard that? But that doesn't go on the news. A lot. Really, a lot. It doesn't go on the news. That specific way was one time. But, but that was one time. But there's been a lot of times where I've had positivity. I was in Trader Joe's. I was in a car parking lot. I thought I was going to get killed. It was this massive guy who's coming up to me. And he tells me, you guys are awesome. And it, was, it, was, it was amazing. Do you know how many times I've had positive things? Because really, keep them because it's a wisdom to the world. At the end, they'll look at the bigger picture and they'll say, how do they maintain healthy? How, what, what is it? And they have wisdom. They have understanding. There's a lot of beauty in Judaism. Not just the culture, which is beautiful, but the meaning behind the culture. But we don't do it because it means and it makes sense. I do it because it's from God. And I know it's the right thing. I have emunah that it's going to be the best for me if I do it. It's not guaranteed it's the best for me. Just because I'm doing uh, tefillin, I'm going to start having wings. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that, right? But we, I believe, I believe that this is the best thing for me because that's what's given to me. And it really works. Because when I look at the general picture of the Jewish people, we fly, we pass with flying colors, right? That's what they say. We, we're amazing. 3,300 years and we're still going strong. It's unbelievable. So my blessing to everyone here is that we should always be proud, committed, under all circumstances to our Judaism, and know that we may not see straight away the results of a commitment, of Shabbat, of the mitzvot, of, but in the long run, it will have an effect on you, whether it's mentally, socially, physically, and in many other areas as well. Um, as long as you don't eat too much uh, matzo balls and uh, gefilte fish, and uh, some uh, babka, because those things are not always so healthy. But anyway, that's another discussion. Physical health is another discussion. But anyway, that's, uh, that's the talk for the night, and I hope you guys enjoyed. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, I have another mic here. If anyone wants to ask questions uh, for the podcast here, if anyone has questions, Omri, take, please take it. Give it, give it to me. We need it for the podcast. Go for it. It's uh, not a podcast-related question. Yes, please. When is the next wine Wednesday? Okay. <laughs> I'll put that on the podcast. Uh, the next wine... I see an answer. I actually took a poll on Instagram, and sad to say that most people said no wine. No, once a month. You could do both. We have tequila today. It's harder. I wasn't included in this poll, so it's not fair. I mean, it wasn't my story. I don't go. 
Whatever, whatever. Uh, another one. No, 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 no. Of course, it's a pleasure. Yes, you have a question? Anyone got questions? Eitan, please. I don't have any questions. Okay, wow. <laughs> yes. Um, so why is it that we can cremate the gold, the red cow, but we can't cremate like actual people when they die? So um, I always say when it comes to cremation that leave the spiritual to the spiritual. Like people say, leave the science to the scientists. Leave the spiritual to the spiritual, meaning we have very clearly what happens, clearly what happens to the body after it passes away. And the best way for a human being, for his body after he passes on, the best thing that he can do for the body is to um, be put in the ground and slowly integrate with the earth because that's where we came from. We came from the earth and that's where we need to return to for the earth. Now, uh, an animal doesn't feel the body of its, the soul doesn't feel the pain of its body after it passes away. An animal, once it passes away, its soul, it has a soul, certain element of nefesh but it doesn't feel the pain when it passes of its body a human being however does and therefore um, we're taught that the best place for it for the neshama to move on for the soul to move on so that it can continue is to be buried now people have asked me what about the people that were burnt in the holocaust the cremation is against jewish law judaism is against cremation what about the what about uh, the bodies that were burned in Nagar? You know, it's not their fault. That wasn't their choice. So, of course, that wasn't their choice. Then it wasn't their choice. But in general, that's, our, that's the law. Okay? I hope I helped. Anything else? Questions? Ideas? You can be unrelated. Cultural? Religious? I guess we'll call it a night. Thank you, thank you. Thank you.